Hey everybody, welcome to the Founder Hour Podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat. On today's episode, we sit down with Jamie Schmidt. She's the founder of Schmidt's Naturals, the natural personal care brand that she scaled from kitchen to acquisition by Unilever in 2017. In the process, Jamie led a movement of modern brands bringing naturals to the mainstream. Today, the brand is sold in over 30 countries and 30,000 retailers, and Jamie continues to support their global expansion. Aside from Schmidt's, Jamie also runs Color, an investment firm that invests directly in emerging founders, primarily women and people of color. In April of this year, she released her new book, Supermaker, Crafting Business on Your Own terms, which follows the growth of the brand and serves as a blueprint for those hoping to scale into a financially successful business. We had a blast getting to know Jamie and sharing her founder story from growing up in a small town in Michigan to pioneering a global movement of natural products. Here we go. I grew up in a a small German tourist town in Michigan called Frankenmuth. Um, you've either heard of it or you haven't, but those that have heard of it know that we're famous for our, uh, our Christmas store, (laughs) world's largest Christmas store. And then also, um, these famous Bavarian style chicken dinners. So it's a really, really crazy town. Um, very small. Um, everybody knew each other. And so it was hard to get away with things. (laughs) Um, I, you know, I was, it was a great place to grow up. I had everything I needed. My parents still live there. So I get back occasionally. Um, but then I was excited to, to venture out and, and go to um, a Big Ten university. So I went to Michigan State, um, kind of chose that um, college because my brother had gone there and really didn't have you know, much of an idea of what I wanted to, to do with my life, but um, knew that a, a degree made sense, especially because my parents were willing to pay for it. Um, and so I got my degree. This was back in 2000 when I graduated. Um, and then it was time to leave Michigan and try something new. So I uh, moved on to Chicago and I lived there five years. Um, but you asked what I was like as a kid and what I was into. Um, you know, I loved the woods. I was definitely outdoors constantly. Um, I had a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit. Um, I have some stories about uh, lemonade stands and, and working my own tables at our family garage sales. Um, so there was always, you know, something I was doing where I was kind of, you know, hustling to make a buck. Um, so it's, it's definitely you know, ingrained in me and it's fun to to look back on those days now and see how that kind of played into my you know, my, my business acumen now. Jamie, where do you think you got those entrepreneurial genes from? You know, were your parents entrepreneurs or was anybody else in your family entrepreneurial? No, it's probably, if anything, more of a the rebellious side of me because nobody in my family was, you know, a risk taker like that. Um, you know, we was, my, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. My dad was an engineer for General Motors. Um, my brother went on to be an accountant. So it was always... You know, very kind of predictable lifestyle. Um, you know, even the extended relatives, no entrepreneurs. Um, so I think you know I was always kind of the outcast in the family, and I think just the entrepreneurial uh, uh, spirit within me was probably just a reflection of that. Mm. Did you? Um, I know you mentioned like when you went to college, you didn't really have an idea of what you wanted to do, but did you have like this vision as a kid of what your like adult life would look like? Of of perhaps mm-hmm. like what career you would have or what field you'd be in. It's funny that the questions you're asking, because you're literally like painting the picture of chapter one of my book. And I, I love it because these are all <laughs> things I speak to. And I know you guys haven't haven't yet read it. Um, yes, I, I well, I thought, you know, the prescribed path was, um, you know, you go to college, you get your degree, you find your soulmate, you get married, you have kids, and then you're, you just kind of go from there. Um, but that didn't didn't work for me that way. You know, and I, 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 I sort of tried the path and um, and took, took some detours. You know, I, I had, did get married kind of early, ended up in a divorce. Um, I did get a, you know, a degree and had a great job right after college, but I ended up quitting because it just didn't feel right. Um, and so I, you know, I, I, I kind of thought I knew what I wanted mostly just because that was all I knew, um, you know, from my upbringing and my family and, uh, but it didn't, didn't turn out that way. And so, you know, things look a little different and, um, I'm proud of the path that I've chosen and, and have no regrets about anything. Jamie, I'm curious along the way, you know, you talk about just doing a bunch of different things, going through a divorce, you know, at any of those situations, did you feel like you were in crisis mode? Like you had no control over what was next, or did you feel like, you know what, this is just a part of my story and, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm going to overcome it somehow, some way, you know, I'm curious about that because a lot of people, you know, have a very similar story journey i mean probably most people where there is no like linear path it's like all over the place and then suddenly Mm -hmm. you wake up one day you're like 
what am I doing with my life? Right? Like yeah. this isn't what I want to be doing. So, that, you know, I want to really kind of delve deep into your mindset in those situations. I remember feeling in certain circumstances that I was, you know, supposed to feel panicked, that I was supposed to, you know, have a certain kind of response to things that had gone wrong. But in reality, it was more just like a learning process for me. And I understood that, you know, I'd figured things out. Um, I was never willing to settle. It took me years and I have 22 jobs on my employment record, um, you know, to, before I started my, my business. And so I just was one of the people that just refused to settle. I didn't start my business till I was 31 years old. Um, and so yeah, if anything, you know, I think there were moments of like, oh, my parents are going to be so disappointed because as, you know, I grew up in the Midwest and just there's this prescribed path as we talked about. And I was always just one of those kids who wanted their parents to be happy with them. And um, so I think if anything, that was the stress, you know, more than more so than my own expectations for myself. Talk to us about, you know, after college, what did you end up doing and where, where like, where, what were you working on? And, um, you know, some of those early jobs that you had and mm-hmm. some of the takeaways, those things. Yeah. My, well, my first job was with a, a staffing company. Um, I had gotten a degree in business with a focus on human resources. So that seemed like a logical step. Um, and it was, I guess, the only person that made a job offer <laughs> to me after, after um, I graduated. Um, so that was interesting, you know, recruiting people to work for other jobs. Um, it didn't last long though. I just felt, I just, it was, it just wasn't working, you know, interviewing people to put them into fun jobs. You know, I was like, where's, where's my fun job? And so I, you know, I didn't take long before I decided I needed to, to remove myself from that environment and try something new. Um, in Chicago though, I did land a pretty cushy job with the MacArthur foundation. Um, a lot of people know them. They're one of the most prestigious foundations in the country. Um, and I got a job working in human resources, really great salary. I had benefits. I really could have been set for life. Um, but it just, you know, I hit that wall where I knew it wasn't, it wasn't long-term, uh, you know, planned for me. Um, and so after five years in Chicago, I made the, the decision to move to Portland. Um, so all the way across country, um, promised myself that I would work for one year in my field. And then after that, I would have to, you know, somehow figure out what I was meant to be doing. Jamie, you know, one thing that I always think about is, and especially more nowadays, is because I just hear during this pandemic about people being unhappy or just trying to realize what they're truly passionate about and um, they're trying to essentially find their purpose, right? But mm-hmm. one thing that I feel like even I've struggled with at times is I always ask myself, like, what are the skills that I have, right? Like, what am I really good at? And I feel mm-hmm. like as a generalist, and a lot of entrepreneurs are generalists, we don't always have like a real skill set, right? We have like a bunch of different things and, you know, we've tasted a bunch of different foods and different cuisines, mm-hmm. but we're not necessarily like great at like one thing, right? Jack of all trades, master of none type situation. Did you ever struggle with that? And, or did you have a skill that, or skills that you really thought would one day pay off? It took me a long time to figure out what my skills were and really where where my passions laid lie. lie. <laughs> um, and it, you know, I it really had to get my hands dirty and try several different, um, you know, jobs and career paths and and side hobbies. Um, you know, when I did understand that the, the career path I had chosen wasn't right for me, I thought, well, maybe I can find, you know, satisfaction or happiness or fulfillment in a side um, hobby or maybe a little side project. Um, and that took some time though. You know, I, I really, for a while, didn't think I was really good at anything. I had tried sewing, you know, I, I thought it might be fun for me, but I really didn't like it at all. Um, tried interior design, um, did a lot of kind of home brewing of kombuchas and hot sauces and things like that. Um, but I just didn't really feel, you know, the excitement until I started formulating natural products. And that was the first time that I thought, you know what, this is something I really like. It's useful for me on a personal level. And then I also recognize there was a you know, real business opportunity in what I was doing. How are you able to just keep going though? I mean, like, and that's the one thing that I always try to think about is, yeah, you know, I've had those moments where I'm like, I don't know what skills I have. And, you know, I like a bunch of different things and I want to try out all this stuff and learn and go delve deep into it. Me and Pat have probably gone deep on, you know, dozens of business ideas and like become mm-hmm. experts at them. But then, you know, you just hit this wall and you're like, is this really what I want to be doing for 40 years? Right. 
Yeah. What kept you going? Like what get, gave you the motivation to say, eh, it's okay. Hot sauces aren't my thing right now. Kombucha is not my thing. I'm not a good sewer. Like, let me just keep trying random things, right? Like mm-hmm. what kept that fire inside you? Yeah, I just had an, an unwillingness to settle, you know, I, I knew that I had one life to live and that I wanted to spend it doing something that brought fulfillment. Um, but it took time, you know, and what really kicked it into gear, I think, is when I got pregnant and I got it was unexpected. And I you know, was at this point in my career where I had to figure it out because I was about to become a mom. And I, you know, I knew that once I was a mom, my attention and, you know, love would be would be elsewhere and so I thought well if it's going to happen it has to happen soon and so that's when I was really scrambling to to really try to figure it out and I I had actually taken a class on how to make personal care products it was a, actually it was a DIY shampoo class um and that's when I uh, I was actually eight, 8 months pregnant when I took it too um and that night at the class I understood that you know it was something I really enjoyed and I wanted to pursue more um, and so throughout, you know, the, the final days of my pregnancy and in the earliest days after my son was born, I was really relentless in, in exploring this hobby. And, um, you know, even a few months after my son was born, I was out at the farmer's markets selling my products and he was there with me in the playpen and, uh, the rest is history. One of the biggest things that, um, folks who are entrepreneurs or perhaps want to start a business, um, face is that you know, is this lack of like capital and money to, to sustain themselves, um, especially, you know, early on. And so I'm just curious, like you mentioned, you know, you had a decent paying job before. Was that how you were able to save some money to take this leap to, to, to mm-hmm. leave your job and essentially start a business from scratch, which perhaps wasn't going to really pay you out um, for a long time? Um, like, is that kind of the way it went for you or? Right. I had a you know a little bit of savings. I used most of that though to move out to Portland. Um, and so when I started Schmidt's, you know, I, I was very I had a very humble um, household income. So I, I was you know married at the time. My husband Chris and I had had met at a social work job. So we were both on you know living on social worker salaries. Um, so our household income was like thirty five thousand um, dollars. And so when I started the business, you know, he kept that job. I committed myself mostly to to building my brand. Um, but I, I did take on a couple of little side hustles, um, just to help really provide the seed to seed money to, to make the business grow. Um, so I, but I was committed to only taking jobs that were really related to my work with building Schmidt's naturals. Um, so maybe that meant, um, you know, like a private label lotion, uh, or working with, um, you know, a local spa to build products, um, to fit, um, for their customer base. And so it, I wanted to make sure that the, the jobs that I did take on the side were, were somehow related to my overall mission with my brand. Um, and that was, that was really crucial for me in those earliest years. And then when I knew the business could sustain itself, that's when I decided it was okay to let go of those, those side jobs. You mentioned being in your early thirties. Um, and this is like the time when a lot of folks, perhaps your peers or friends are like moving along in their careers and perhaps making a lot of you know good money or just like, you know, um, growing within their companies. Um, was it, you know, was it like difficult to, or I guess the question is what, what was the thing that you were so passionate about that you were able to like block that out? Cause it's easy mm-hmm. to get caught up in that, um, where you're like, you know what, this is what I want to go after. I can see myself doing this for the rest of my life. Perhaps mm-hmm. was that the feeling or was it a little bit more like opportunistic where it was like, I'll try this out again and if it doesn't work. I'll go back to mm-hmm. work. It's not a big deal. Well, I was I was in Portland, and so the scene back then was you know really um, such a creative you know artistic community. So to be honest, I really felt like the outsider by not having you know a creative outlet and something that I could take pride in. And so um, by starting um, my own company and with building natural personal care products, I felt like I finally had a way to express myself creatively. Um, so if anything, I felt like I was fitting in more. Um, of course, not everybody was taking their, you know, craft or art and turning it into a business. And so that's when things got a little different. Um, I think, you know, I had, you know, friends back from the, in the Midwest who probably were living a different lifestyle and maybe having kids. And I guess I was having a kid too, but, um, you know, maybe building out their career paths that were a little more secure and stable. Um, but, it, but, but, you know, everybody has their own, their own path and their own way. And this is what made sense to me at the time. And, 
um, you know, today looking back, I'm very happy that I made the choices that I made. Jimmy, you talk about meeting, uh, your husband whose name is Chris, you said, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. And, and, you know, you guys are what late twenties, early thirties. And, uh, you know, like Pat mentioned, it's kind of the period of time where you're, you've been working for a few years and now it's really time to accelerate your career. And, you know, ever since Pat and I started this show, you know, we've grown up to, you know, personally three years now. And, uh, a lot of the people that listen have grown up and they're probably in the same stage that, you know, you and Chris were in, um, where, you know, they were thinking about, you know, getting married or thinking about moving into the next stage of their life career wise. And you start having these serious conversations about, okay, well, who's going to make money, right? You know, Mm -hmm. who's going to take care of the kid? How are we going to afford to buy a house or live or pay for, right? You have all these like, you know, adult conversations. Um, Mm -hmm. And you talk about being on a social worker's salary. I mean, like, realistically speaking, like, you know, what were you out of your mind for like trying to build a brand and build a business when, you know, you guys were making a combined 30,000, like, I mean, you guys lived in Portland, like this is like what, 10 years ago. So it's still not a cheap city, right? Like we're in LA, it's definitely not cheap. You know, San Francisco, Mm -hmm. a lot of these places where you see a lot of entrepreneurs, things are expensive, right? But the risk you took was so great. And it also affected, you know, your husband, right? Looking back, Mm -hmm. technically it affected him as well. So what was that conversation like when you guys were having those, you know, early, um, you know, discussions about your right. business and what life was going to look like for you guys. We, to answer your question, we probably were a little out of our minds, you know, <laughs> but I, you know, I, I really think part of this, we were very new in our relationship too. And I think that was just like a kind of a little special, um, I guess, advantage that we had where, you know, we were just so willing to just, you know, start this new life and whatever that meant for us, you know, we, we would support one another. Um, and it gets harder, you know, not only further along your relationship, but, you know, as your kids get older and as we get older. And so I think it was just the perfect scenario for us. And my husband, you know, he, he was in a band at the time. He had other ways to express himself creatively and he understood the importance of that to me and was, you know, so supportive of it. Um, and so I think we just knew that things would figure themselves out along the way. We were both very tolerant of risk. Um, it's scary when you are new parents, of course, but we, you know, had faith in our ability to, um, you know, make, make different decisions and, and take a a different path, I guess, if things fell apart. (laughs) Um, but it was scary, you know, and I, but I'm just so grateful for his support from day one. And, um, I definitely couldn't have done it without, you know, the, the, the meager, yes, salary that he brought in, but it was enough, you know, for us, for our family to get what we needed. Um, so talk to us about how you ended up coming across just natural products and falling in love with that and, you know, wanting mm-hmm. to pursue that, you know, after or for the, for your next like venture, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, part of it was that I was pregnant. And so I was paying closer attention to the products I was using on my skin. Um, I had always been interested in natural products, but really the one product that was always frustrating to me that I just hadn't found one you know brand that I had loved was was deodorant and so I saw real opportunity there and I knew from conversations with my friends and um, you know family and just people at these markets in the earliest days that this was a shared frustration and that the industry was really you know ripe for for something new here and so that you know the timing was perfect for me mm-hmm. and for context around what year was this 2010. 2010. Yeah, yeah I remember so was, like even Yeah, go ahead. Like being in high school or like graduating high school at that time and like my 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 mom would like tell me like, you know, use use natural products and like there was a lot of like shampoos and soaps and that, that kind of stuff, but for some reason she would always like talk about the deodorant too, which had all these chemicals in it. And so like mm-hmm. how did you even go about thinking of what the product was going to look mm-hmm. like? Like, did you have to go out and talk to scientists or people who like created these formulas and figure out what the, what the ideal, you know, uh, situ- mm-hmm. scenario would be? Well, I was always pretty scrappy with, um, figuring things out, um, DIY. Um, and so I it was actually at the time I was making things like lotions and sunscreens and soaps. Um, so I bought a bunch of books. Um, but the crazy thing is most of these books, didn't even mention deodorant, right? So there was no kind of shortcut that I could take to, to copy a recipe. Um, but I was pretty good at Googling. And 
um, really knew that you know, the way to go about it was to find the ingredients that were going to do what I wanted the deodorant to do, right? So that means keeping you dry and stopping you from stinking. Um, and then also, um, you know, the texture becomes um, something of importance. So what can I put in the product that's going to give it a nice consistency, but also staying natural? It wasn't easy, though, because most, you know, deodorants on the market have um, kind of, you know, potentially sketchy ingredients like propylene glycol, for example, is the ingredient that makes the deodorant have a really slick consistency that we're all so accustomed to. Um, but I refuse to use that in my formula because it's not natural. And so I had to, you know, really dig deep to find the right ingredients that would work. And it was also important for me to make sure that every ingredient that was in the product served a purpose. I didn't want to have filler ingredients like water or things that you know, would cheapen the formula. And so um, that added another layer of, uh, I guess, pressure to the formulating process. Jamie, when you started this deodorant company, were there no other natural deodorants out there? There were, there were a couple of brands. Tom's Main was, was most popular at the time. Um, there were a couple other heritage brands, but they didn't, they had a reputation for not working. I mean, even when I would be out at the markets, you know, in these earliest days, people would see natural deodorant and they'd say, Oh, natural deodorant doesn't work. And that's just, that was right. based on their experience they had with these other brands that were available. And so I had a lot of work to do to really convince people, you know, that it could work. And that if they tried my product, you know, they would see that it, you know, might be, maybe a good fit for them. And so there were brands on the market. Um, they're still on the market today, you know, but I think um, some of these formulas have been upgraded or maybe they um, have other products that, you know, they're, <laughs> that have become their hero products and maybe the deodorant really isn't, you know, isn't their shining star. And um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So was the idea to have a natural formula that would also have a nice odor, like a nice smell, which I, I, yeah. I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that the, the chemicals like have something to do with the odor, right? Like giving off like a really nice odor or whatever, or was it just like to stop bad body odor <laughs> and, it was and both. also be yeah. natural? Yeah. So I, you know, I, I've always been a fan of fragrance. Uh, I love essential oils and I saw a real opportunity to, uh, create fragrances that were different than than any deodorants that were out there. They were, you know, the, the ones that were natural basically smelled like lavender. Um, and so I recognized there was um, opportunity to create interesting fragrances that didn't yet exist. And it was fun for me. And so at the time when I first started, you know, I really just used my own intuition and my personal preferences to build these fragrances. And then as time went on, you know, I would talk to customers and get their feedback on, you know, what fragrances I wanted to see next. Um, and Schmitz today still, you know, creates um, these really beautiful scent combinations that you don't see with other brands. And Jamie, we'll talk about this a little later in the podcast, but, you know, you wrote a book called Supermaker. And in chapter three, the title is Say Yes Now, Then Figure Out How. I'm curious, while you were building this company, right, building this brand, give us an example of a time you said yes when you had no idea how to do it. But then you just figured it out because you had to. Yeah. Gosh, it, it really just threw out the growth of the business. But one, one example that comes to mind is um, in a, my first meeting with Target. Um, you know, they were interested in carrying the brand, but they hadn't yet committed um, because they wanted to see a couple things done differently. Um, one was they wanted the deodorant to have a rounded top. But at the time, the deodorants were flat. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I wanted to give them what they wanted. I had no idea how I was going to go about that and what that meant for a manufacturing process. But I said, yes. And then I called the factory and I said, we got to figure this out. Um, and, you know, Schmitz was um, operating all our um, production in-house. And so, you know, we had the advantage there, but it was also kind of a disadvantage because it meant learning everything ourselves. Um, Target also wanted to, you know, see um, artwork on the cap. Not a, not a huge thing, but it also it meant, you know, making adjustments to your labeling machines and having your designers, you know, step up and change things. And so just, just saying yes and, and being very willing to deliver immediately, you know, that, that is really what gave me a competitive advantage a lot of times. But I guess earlier on in the journey, right, when you mm -hmm. were first launching, I mean, give us a time then, because a lot of the people that listen to us now, you know, some yes are in their later stages of being you know founders but a lot of them are interested in starting right now right mm -hmm. like they've been inspired they have ideas they've heard the founder hour now for three plus years 
they know that they could pick one product, hone in on it and grow it. So, you know, we have educated listeners is what I like to call them. But, Mm -hmm. you know, early on, it's tough, right? You don't have the answers to everything. You know, what was a situation earlier on where you were like literally clueless, right? You just hit a roadblock um, and you just kept going, right? You were like, you know, this is, I just got to do it. Yeah. I, uh, one great example is uh, I had an opportunity to be on TV like way before I was prepared to do so. Um, it was on Fox News of all of all networks. Um, it was with the Carol Alt show where she wanted to interview me about my deodorant. But I had like zero media training. I had never been, you know, I'd never even had like an interview with press at, up at that point. And so I, it was incredibly nerve wracking for me and I was scared out of my mind, but I knew that it was a great opportunity for me. So I said, yes. And I flew to New York and woke up the next morning and showed up at the studio. And next, you know, next thing you know, I'm standing under these bright lights and being interviewed. And, um, you know, I, it, it was very new and uncomfortable for me because I'd never really established, you know, any strong speaking points and was just kind of, you know, going off the cuff. I didn't have a PR firm at the time. I didn't have anybody there to you know, kind of train me and hold my hand. Um, so I think, you know, that's, that's a fun example for me to look back on. Yeah. Um, so in those early days, like when you create the product, what's, what's the next step? I mean, I you mentioned, you know, mm-hmm. farmer's markets and you're sort of like hustling, like, I'm sure you were just trying to, trying to sell it in person at some point. Like, how did, like, how did it end up becoming a uh, mm-hmm. full on business? Yeah. The retail distribution came pretty quickly and, and, and pretty organically. I had retailers actually at my booth at these markets, you know, showing interest. Um, and once that started, I recognized, you know, there's great opportunity in stores for me. And so I took it upon myself to, to start pitching, you know, locally and then nationally. And next thing you know, we had global interest. Um, and customer word of mouth was so powerful. Um, and just even connecting with a couple influencers who were there, you know, willing to talk about the product you know, that helped us get the attention we needed from some retail accounts. Um, so it just, it just grew so fast and the product worked, you know, and that's, that was the message is that Schmitz is a natural deodorant that finally works. And it, you know, it was, it was really, I was in a position where a lot of the retailer interest was incoming, you know, so I didn't have to build out a huge sales department because I was fortunate that people you know, were coming to me. Hmm. I always try to ask this question to founders, when you first launched, did you know that you were going to be successful? Mm. No, you know, I, I believed in my product and I knew that there was real potential in it to, to change lives and, you know, to, to be a top selling deodorant, but I knew it just takes so much work to get there. Um, and so, you know, fast forward seven years from when I started and I'm in talks with Unilever and other big CPG firms and, um, it was mind blowing really to, to realize that I had made such an impact on an industry and, um, you know, was, was taking sales away from some of these heritage brands I had been around for so long and, um, crazy actually. <laughs> um, so no, I, I didn't know, but you know, I, I never looked too far ahead. I think that was really a strength for me was to focus on what was right in front of me and had, I, you know, had too much of a long-term vision or, um, or plan, I think it could have sidetracked me or really been overwhelming. And so I really see that as a strength is just this ability to, you know, kind of stay focused on the short term. Hmm. And, and was it like the, uh, um, I guess the initial growth or the initial, um, adoption, was mm-hmm. it purely because it was natural and your audience was folks who was, who were looking for natural products or was it more to it than that? Cause was it, I mean, I can imagine it was more expensive than some of the other, um, like legacy branded products that were on the shelves. Um, mm-hmm. was it was it purely that community that kind of took it off, and then at some point people just started finding out about it? In the earliest days, yes, it was. You know, the natural products lover was our was our niche customer. Um, but then from there, you know, we recognized the real opportunity in competing with not just other natural brands, but with these conventional deodorants that that weren't natural. Um, so a few years into the business, you know, that's really where we, where we saw the, the biggest opportunity is on the shelves next to brands like Secret and Dove and Axe. And as important as it was for us to be known as, you know, the leading natural deodorant brand, we also just wanted to be known as a really great deodorant. 
I'm curious, you know, you talk about, you know, not really looking too far ahead. Did you have anybody that kept you accountable or were you just really good at holding yourself accountable? Mm. Yeah, I guess, I guess I was pretty good at, at holding myself accountable. I mean, I had, um, you know, great team of employees and, um, without them, I never would have made it, you know, to the level that, that Schmitz had grown. Um, so I think it's just, you know, a bit of luck and some, you know, perseverance and then just, uh, a good team. Yeah. And was it speaking of team, like, was it difficult for you to like initially like lead a team or was it something that came natural to you? Like, I, I don't know if you mentioned it already, but it sounds like you didn't really have much experience, like leading a big team prior to starting, uh, Schmidt. So was it like a learning process or, uh, was it a little bit more like innate? Yeah, I, I think about this a lot, how, you know, not everybody, not every founder is a born leader, but it's such a critical skill, you know, you, and as a founder, you end up having to be a leader because you need people to help you build your brand. Um, so for me, it, it took a bit of learning. And I, I think what was key there was hiring the right people who were willing to grow alongside me. Um, you know, I look back from the day that Schmitz was acquired by Unilever you know, all the way back to the, my first hire and how much I'd grown as a, as a person and how my employees really witnessed this transformation in me. Um, so I do think it, it takes practice and it's, it's an art and I'm, not everybody's up for it. And I think that's when hiring the right managers or directors, you know, really be, becomes beneficial. And I, I did that too. I had layers of um, reporting you know, structure that, that helped alleviate some of my work. But um, as a founder and the CEO, you know, you're, you're the go-to and um, those are skills you have to develop. And, and do you think that's developed just purely by doing, or would you point to some like resources or um, other other perhaps outlets that uh, an early founder can look to to learn that stuff? For me, it was just doing. Uh, I just I never took the time to find outside resources. I imagine they exist, um, but I think some of this, you know, you just have to jump in and figure it out. Um, and just be honest and transparent with your team, you know, encourage their feedback. I think if you have an open communication style with the people that work for you, you know, they'll, they'll help you and they'll let you know what they need from you. And I think that's more valuable than any book or any sort of, I guess, training. Jamie, what were you like as a leader? I mean, like, let's say I worked for you, right? I'm your, I don't know, director of marketing and Mm -hmm. I completely just messed up a campaign that we've been working on for two months I come to you, you know, just like, you know, just obviously very upset and sad. And I say, Jamie, you know, I messed up, you know, like Mm -hmm. I'm going to take credit for my team and what we did wrong. You know, we've lost, lost the company cup, you know, a few, I don't know, $10,000 or whatever the case may be. How do you respond to that? Well, my director of marketing was my husband. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> this is a bad example because you definitely yelled at him. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know if that's an advantage for him or a disadvantage, but um, um, you know, I my leadership style. I think like just the the idea that if you're coming to me and being honest and open that you screwed up, you know, that in itself just carries you know, so much respect. I, I, I'm not the type to get mad and, and yell at someone. I just don't have that in me. You know, even in my other parts of my life, I'm not a yeller. Um, but I'll let you know if I'm, you, you know, annoyed. You don't seem like a yeller. <laughs> I'm not much of a yeller. I've tried with my son, but it doesn't always work. Um, but I, but I'll, you know, I, I, I still am human and I get irritated and I have expectations of people and um, I'll let you know if you're under delivering. But one thing I've realized that's most important in leadership is to just to have, you can't have oversight without, or excuse me, you can't have expectations without oversight. And I learned that I actually was tweeting about that today. Um, I think it's, it's really easy to get things off our plate and to say, you know, you go figure this out. This is on you. Cause I have so much to do right. As the head of the company, but that's, that's not always the most effective approach. We have to make sure how we're still guiding our employees. And when things go wrong, it's oftentimes our fault, right? Because we didn't give that kind of oversight that they needed or we weren't or we weren't very clear in our expectations. And, um, so if something were to go wrong, I generally just saw it, you know, partly as, as my own fault. <laughs> right. But I'm curious, so as a leader, but also as like a teammate, right? Because you can't just, mm-hmm. you know, in business, it's not like you're the coach without being the player, you're the player and the coach uh, mm-hmm. and you're part of the team. But, 
how do you tell someone they're under, you know, underperforming, whether it is someone who responds to you or whether it's a teammate, right? Like if I'm working with someone and I know that they can do more, right, they could do better, you know, and they're, they're not meeting their potential. How do you bring up that conversation? Yeah, that's hard. What does that consist of? Yeah, I think it's, you know, just a very open conversation about, you know, what, what the goal is and maybe where we're falling short. And I think most importantly is offering up, you know, how can I help you, you know, achieve this goal or where am I as a leader falling short and you, and you, you know, meeting this, this goal or the expectation of mine. And, you know, so putting it on me a bit, but also, you know, sometimes that means having very clear measurable goals you know for the employee and maybe that means regular check-ins to make sure that they're staying on task and every employee is so different you know some really need and want their hand to be held and others want a bit more autonomy and so i think it's very individualized and that's what makes leadership so hard is that everybody is so different and has different needs there Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Uh, you mentioned after seven years, you know, Unilever comes along and acquires Schmidt's Naturals. How did that whole thing come about? Were you looking for an acquirer or mm-hmm. did they just sort of, uh, you know, see that you were making some noise and, and hit you up and said, hey, we want to acquire you? Like, how did that whole thing come to Yeah. You? Well, 2017 was, was definitely a very, you know, hot year for us. That was the year, <clears throat> excuse me, that we launched Mass. Um, so we were in Target, Costco and Walmart all within months of each other. Um, so with that meant, you know, being, being very tight for, for cash, you know, all our money was tied up in inventory on the shelves. Um, so we understood that it was probably time to, to start looking for money. You know, we hadn't raised from a VC yet. Um, and so we did start having those conversations, but that also meant, um, uh, you know, getting attention of a broker who was having conversations with, uh, giants like Unilever and, and, and the others. And once we, you know, had that initial interest, then other other CPGs got very interested too. You know, they they wanted a piece of it and they wanted to to throw their offer into the ring. And so it really it came quickly. Uh, it came sort of out of nowhere. You know, once the broker had understood the potential in us, you know, they started having conversations. Um, but when I started this business, I never had a plan for selling. You know, it wasn't in my thinking. Um, of course, you know, as the business started to grow, I knew there was some opportunity there, but I still was just so focused on building and what was right in front of me that I hadn't given it much thought. Um, but once we started entertaining those conversations, I, you know, I really understood the, the potential in it, you know, not just professionally, but, but personally. And, um, I was excited and then, you know, the diligence process started and that's when things got heavy and heated and we were in negotiations with uh, a couple different players um, and then fast forward to, you know, end of the year, 2017 and had the offer from Unilever. Right. And you know, it's, th- there's a lot that happened bef- between your launch and then, you know, the acquisition and, you know, mm-hmm. selling the company that you obviously discuss in your book and it's too long of a story to go through it today. So I encourage people to really pick up this book and read it, especially if they want to be you know, entrepreneurs and start something, right? And even if you don't, that's fine. But I think it's important for people to understand how challenging it is to not only start the business, but then to launch it and then to grow it. And then the challenges that come with that, right? Like, yes, you had a seven year, you know, run and then you had a successful exit, but that's not the story for what 99.9% of businesses, right? right? A lot of them probably have to go 20, 30, 40 years before there's even a discussion. And usually there's not, they just end up passing it to their kids or they shut down the business or whatever the case may be. But, you know, in those seven years, and I know, you know, when you talk about scaling and about expanding and having an open mind, et cetera, what was something that stood out to you in those seven years that every entrepreneur should know before starting a business or before even launching a product we won't even call it a business but before launching a product what's the one thing that every entrepreneur should know i think you just have to really want it and believe in your product um i you know i i think about like this concept of just being all in and i think to be an entrepreneur you have to um but that's hard if you don't fully I guess, believe in or, or trust in the potential of your product. And so for me, it was just a very 
quite a natural progression because I, I loved what I was doing so much. Um, I could see that, you know, I was changing lives. I was hearing testimonials from customers. And so just that, you know, motivation was enough to keep me going. Um, there's so much, so much that went wrong in building the business, as you said, you know, in those seven years and in the, in the depths of my book, you'll, you'll read that. Um, but you just have to keep powering through. And I think what was really useful for me was just to keep reminding myself why I started, you know, going back to that point of like, you know, why am I doing this? Because it's so easy to get overwhelmed and just throw in the towel. Right. To both of your points though, you know, um, Mm -hmm. Like often there are entrepreneurs who start businesses that perhaps after like, again, 10 years, like they're still sort of in the grind. Like they haven't really reached that level where um, they could sell the business or move on from it. Uh, I mean, they could move on from it by shutting it down. But I guess the question is like, is there a time or a sign? I'm sure there's many signs, but is there a time when, you know, an entrepreneur should essentially walk away and, and do something else because it's not working out. Like it's, it's something that I think I like to your point about being all in. I think it's common for entrepreneurs to have that all in mindset of, you know, I'm committed to this. I'm going to, I'm just going to go down with the ship. But is there also like a time when it's right to, to quit and, and, and maybe not quit, but change paths and do something different? I think there's really two components to it. I mean, one is how you feel. If you just simply don't like what you're doing, then it's time to question whether you want to keep going. And then secondly is just the financial piece of it, right? I mean, we need money to live. We need money for the business to continue going. We have to pay our employees. So if that's not, if that part of it's not working out, I mean, that's when you really, it's time to start questioning things. And, you know, of course, there's ways to, to save your business financially if you need it. Maybe it's getting funding or getting a loan. Um, but if you've tried those paths and that's just not you know, working for you, then I guess that's time, you know, to reconsider. Like you said, it doesn't always mean quitting, but maybe it's just a shift. Maybe it means um, just kind of re, I guess, rephrasing the way you think about your business, or maybe it's even just a kind of a shift in the products that you're offering. It doesn't always mean completely giving up and starting from scratch. So there might be some things you can salvage. Mm-hmm. Jimmy, you talk about, and you mentioned the phrase changing lives several times throughout this mm-hmm. podcast. And I know you mentioned that previously and other things and appearances that you've done you know i guess there's a two-part question when you first started schmitz um did you was there an impact piece like was there uh, a goal or did you have a vision to have some sort of impact beyond just selling deodorant and mm-hmm. at the end of it all right you know six seven years into it what was the impact that, you know, you were making both as an entrepreneur, business owner, as a company, as a product? Talk to me a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. When the business started, I mean, I'll admit it was more of a self-centered, you know, inspiration, right? I was doing it because I liked it. I enjoyed it. And I saw business potential. Um, but once I started talking to customers and just really hearing their testimonials, it was just a really cool feeling to know that I was actually having an impact on lives. And so, you know, something switched inside me where I thought, you know, this is beyond you. This is big. This is, you know, something that people need and they want. And so you, you have to give it to them. Um, and so as the business was building, I, you know, made it my mission very early on to, to make natural, healthy products available to the masses. And, you know, Schmitz really is a pioneer in, in this movement towards natural products. And I'm so proud of, you know, the, the way that we have changed the perception of naturals in the industry and, you know, being one of the first brands to go mainstream into retailers like Target and Walmart. Now that that's really cool. And, the, you know, we see a lot of these brands coming up behind us and I'm just, just, you know, really happy and proud to, to have been the, the pioneer. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes when a, a company gets acquired, normally part of the terms of the deal is that, you know, you as the founder or CEO have to stay on for X amount of years and, sort of carry that carry out that transition is that what happened with you or or did you end up leaving like what happened what happened like immediately after i guess uh mm-hmm. unilever acquired um schmitz uh, i i am still involved um you know we're three years post acquisition right now and i'm still working for the brand um so that was that was really important to me i i knew it was time for me to move away from the operations you know and, and explore other opportunities in my life but i still wanted to stay very connected 
um, you know, Schmitz was my baby, right? And it has my name on it. And it was such a part of me for so long. And so it was important for me to, to stay connected. And um, I'm happy to still be supporting the brand right now um, on their international expansion, offering some insights into um, product development. Um, and so, you know, we, we renew the contracts, um, you know, uh, every year. And so it's something that um, I want to continue with. And I think Schmitz agrees that it's a mutually beneficial arrangement. And what did you want to do beyond that? You know, you talked about doing kind of your own thing. Uh, I know you have your own investment fund. You have obviously, you know, you wrote this book. Um, mm -hmm. Is that something that you set out to do or is it just something that kind of came once you had a little bit of, I assume you had a little bit of time off, hopefully. If yeah. not, I think you deserve it. Uh, but, you know, when did all this inspiration or when did the motivation to do something beyond Schmitz come about? I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but I understood that I, you know, was was well equipped to have an impact on other entrepreneurs. Um, and then, you know, it didn't take long before I kind of got antsy and wanted wanted to do more after the acquisition. And so, um, the book became a clear uh, path for me. I knew that I could reach a lot of people that way, and to really, you know, tell my story. And and through the story, I I was hopeful that. You know, I could inspire other other makers and entrepreneurs to to pursue you know their their goals and their dreams, um, and it you know my my goal in that too was just to really offer business advice in a way that was tangible and practical. Um, a lot of business books are written um, in a way where you know the the book will tell you you need to do X Y Z, but it doesn't explain or really illustrate why or how. And so through my storytelling, you know, that was my goal to, to, to show people, you know, the reasons behind the advice that I was giving. Um, I also knew that, um, you know, there's great potential in, in investing. Uh, you know, I had the capital to do so, but I also had the operator and founder experience that I could bring to other companies. Um, there are a lot of investors out there that have, you know, the money, but they don't necessarily have, um, you know, the experience. And so that was one way I stood out as an investor. Um, so those two initiatives you know, were really um, have became clear to me pretty early on after the acquisition. And, um, there's more to be done. You know, I, I see the impact that I've had, and I'm getting great feedback on you know, things like my book and and you know my investment fund. And we'll see what's next. Mm -hmm. And as an early stage investor, what do you you know? Obviously, this year has been crazy, and <laughs> everything's mm -hmm. changed, um, shifted, and um, just things are looking like it's going to be different than it was before. But but like for you specifically, what are you most excited about perhaps in the next, you know, five to 10 years? I think the brands that are going to come out of, you know, this um, pandemic are going to just be so strong and so well-equipped uh, that that's exciting to me as an investor. Um, I, you know, I see so much deal flow crossing my desk every day and it's just really cool to see some of these founders just powering through and um, adapting and um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really neat place to 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 work from and i think back to you know the days that i was growing my brand and how i as a founder and operator you know would have adjusted to this crisis and it it's crazy to think about and so i'm just so so blown away by some of the you know the, the founders that are approaching me today that are that are building their brands in these crazy times another thing though is that like you know we see a lot of deal flow but we also see a lot of money floating around in venture and mm -hmm. um it seems like venture is becoming a lot more just like decent not decentralized but like it's becoming very spread out um where there are folks like you who with your experience are starting a venture fund there there are you know your traditional ones like sequoias and um and recent horowitz and and those guys so how do you see at least maybe the future of vc working out because as a as a founder you know i and i hear from other founders like you want to have someone that has founder experience advising you and helping you out. Um, so do you see that becoming like a little bit more, you know, siloed venture funds that are led by former founders and that's kind of how it's going to be or. Mm -hmm. I do thoughts? think that, I think that will be increasingly important. Um, I think about opportunities to, you know, even partner up with some of the brands that um, have sold to Unilever. Right. And they just think about a fund that is created out of these, you know, companies that, that have, have been there and done it and um or excuse me these founders that have been there and done it and just this great opportunity to you know not only invest as maybe an angel um but to to really partner up and create some incredibly you know powerful um fund that that is a operator it's you know experience 
Yeah, and it's great to see. That. I know we've had uh, Vicky Tsai from Tatra on our show and uh, Dr. Murad. Yeah. Who um, I think both sold their companies to Unilever, right? Yeah. 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 And I'm sure probably a bunch of others that we can't even remember. But, you know, it's just great to see that, you know, and all, and all three of you have just such unique stories. And, you know, it's very interesting that Unilever, I think, probably takes that into consideration, right? Like where these founders started and the grit that they had and the tenacity to just, you know, keep going. You know, I don't think the, th- you know, looking at just the three of you, you know, who, you know, started companies that were, you know, acquired by Unilever, none of you really came from this place of wealth or, you know, a skill in that specific, you know, industry. And just, you just had a passion for something and you just kept going and, you know, you, you got rewarded for it, frankly, at the mm-hmm. end of the day. Uh, and, and I think that's a great example to, you know, the folks that are out there who, you know, maybe just hustling right now and don't necessarily know what their career holds, but, you know, are trying to find that one thing that they're truly passionate about. So, you know, your story and the example that you're setting by, you know, b- both writing this book and, um, you know, investing in, you know, future entrepreneurs is, is incredible for sure. Thank you. All righty. Well, yeah, I appreciate your time and being on the show and, and sharing your story. I can't wait to dive into the book. Yep. Um, yeah. And uh, we'll let you know how it goes. But uh, yeah, it's called Supermaker, and I'm sure it's available you know, everywhere, Amazon, yep. uh, everywhere you can find books. So uh, appreciate it, Jamie. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you both.